In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Folks, welcome back to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. Well, my friends, it's good to be back. Good to talk with you again. We have a special guest today, Dr. Dahlia Waspi. Before we get to her and we'll have her I think for most of the hour or until she gets sick of talking to me and um, we'll get to that soon I don't have any major announcements today obviously we've been encouraging everyone to engage with pay attention to what's happening at Standing Rock of course the quadrennial electoral extravaganza is still ripping attention away from these so important, uh, these these events and protests and actions that are so much more important than the current spectacle of U.S. presidential politics. I'm glad that the events, the resistance at Standing Rock is getting the attention it deserves. However, one of the reasons why I've decided to invite Dahlia on the wa- on Dahlia Wasfi on today's program is because there are other events taking place throughout the world, particularly in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Western Asia, that aren't getting so much attention. Of course, when we do hear about what's happening in places like Syria, Afghanistan, or Iraq, which we'll talk about in depth today. Usually you'll see images of various uh, organizations, people chopping each other's heads off. Uh, We'll see the brutality of, of groups like ISIS, but we won't see what the U.S. and other Western occupying forces have done, what the ramifications and the, and the, the death and destruction that has been caused by 15 years of direct occupation, by what we'll talk about throughout the program, which has been many, many decades of meddling in that part of the world by the U.S. and other Western allies. And these issues, in my mind are the issues that are still lacking from mainstream discourse, from the mainstream media, pop culture in the United States, the arts, and even in the activist world and in the academic world. There, there's been... So when people ask me, well, what's going on in the United States? Are there interesting political movements happening? What's, what's going on? Okay, 
domestically, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening with regard to domestic policies, ranging from Standing Rock to the Fight for 15 movement to Black Lives Matter and so on. The one movement that is lacking in the United States is an anti-war movement. And when an anti-war movement did exist, if you want to call it that, an anti-war movement, there were many problems within that movement. Our ability to be effective was very limited. And I don't think we ever properly sort of gotten, got to the root of what was wrong and what is wrong with U.S. empire and so on. So all that being said, let me introduce today's guest Dr. Dahlia Waspi was born in the United States in 1971 to an American Jewish mother and an Iraqi Muslim father. After graduating from Swarthmore College with a BA in biology in 1993, Dahlia earned her medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1997, but left medicine in 2002. Today, she works for social justice. Dr. Wasfi has made two trips to Iraq to visit her extended family since 2003 and the shock and awe invasion, including a three-month-long stay in Basra in the spring of 2006. She is an activist in support of ending the U.S.-led and U.S.-funded occupations, both military and economic, of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Palestine. Currently, Dr. Wasfi is working on a book that humanizes the victims of American and Israeli policy from the Nile to the Euphrates on Twitter. She can be found at her handle, which is at Liberate This. Dr. Dahlia Wasfi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you back. So we have some time. I want to, since this program has got a different audience from the last time we spoke, Let's talk a little bit about your background and personal history. So I mentioned some of it in the bio. Can you expand a little bit on that? That way we can sort of humanize you for the listeners here. Sure. Um, we could go into my psych history, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, which, uh, which sponsored my activism. But anyway, um, I don't want to scare your new listeners. But um, so uh, as you described, I was born in the U.S. Uh, my dad was originally uh, from Basra, Iraq. Basra is Iraq's second largest city in the south, near the border with Kuwait. And my father was born and raised there. Um, some of what I'm writing about in my book is, is about my dad's life story and how he really grew up in a revolutionary time in Iraq and driving the, the British occupiers out, um, out of Iraq. Um, but once the British were kicked out in 1958, he really focused on his education, and he ended up doing his graduate studies in the U.S. And he came to uh, Georgetown University in 1963, and uh, he was living at the International Student House, where he met my mom. My mom was born and raised in New York, and uh, she, her field was international relations, actually focusing on Latin America, but they happened to me because they were both living at the International Student House. Um, and uh, the crazy part about my mom's background is that she was born here to uh, my grandparents who were refugees from Hitler. Uh, my grandparents were Austrian Jews who fled the Holocaust after Germany occupied Austria. So she grew up in a traditional 
Jewish home, which was a traditional Zionist home, meaning that there was support for the establishment of a safe haven for Jews um, so that they had somewhere to, uh, to flee persecution. Um, what my grandparents didn't know and what my mom didn't know growing up was that uh, the same ethnic cleansing that my grandparents fled in, in Europe was what happened in Palestine to establish that quote-unquote safe haven. Um, and that, what happened in the early 1940s and extending and then through the establishment of Israel in 1948, that is really the crux of the matter that affects the entire region um, of what we know as the Middle East today. Um, but so anyway, when my, my parents met, my mom for the first time heard, um, heard a different side, heard the Arab side of the story. And uh, once she knew that, she couldn't, she couldn't unsee the truth. And that caused a, a rift in my family. I wasn't there yet, but um, eventually my parents got married. My grandparents on my mom's side were furious, and they kicked my mom out of the house. Now, by the time I came along, I have an older sister, and once the two of us had been born, the relationship in the family had been smoothed over. But as a kid, I, I always knew that there was a problem between, in particular, my father and uh, my grandmother. There was just an amount of friction there that was under the surface that I just didn't understand. And over time, I, I made my own interpretation of what the... Um, what the conflict was, but it was underlying this massive um, political and justice issue in Palestine. So I initially, as a child, wanted to heal my family, and essentially my activist work is still at the root of it is to bring a sense of peace, um, and I've just externalized that to um, trying to use my privilege uh, and my voice to uh, to educate people, to still trying to bring about um, peace, and uh, without justice, we won't have that peace. So my focus had been, um, although I was, uh, as you heard from my bio, I was very much uh, going to school. I, I'm very privileged. I went to um, very expensive schools and had opportunities that um, certainly most people outside of this country don't have, and then even in this country, um, a uh, very privileged life, and I was I was gunning to be part of the establishment, but there was always something in the back of my mind that just my conscience did not sit well with that. And um, the first real crisis of conscience happened in 1991 with the first Gulf War, um, but I sort of pushed that uh, that suffering to the back of my mind, even though I had family in harm's way. My father was the only one who left Iraq, and all of my relatives on my father's side of the family uh, were and are still there. Um, but I had a focus on becoming successful in the U.S., so I really tried to pay as little attention as possible uh, until um, the events of September 11, 2001. And then, though I didn't suffer what some of the real uh, brutal brutality that, that many people suffered in the anti-Arab and anti-Muslim backlash, there were um, more difficult uh uh, encounters in my workplace. At that time, I was training to be an anesthesiologist um, in Washington, D.C. Um, but around that time, there were a few things in my life not going too well. Um, and then the focus became 
uh, Iraq. We, we invaded Afghanistan, and then the focus of, our, of the U.S. government was to invade Iraq. And this crisis was something I could not ignore, that there would actually be um, a direct assault um, by the country of my birth, uh, the U.S., uh, to the country of my father's birth. Uh, and that was basically I, I had to take leave from my residency at that time in 2002, uh, as it turned out, uh, let's see, 14 years later, I, I've, I haven't gone back. Um, but uh, so I, I tried to continue, um, but I just couldn't. So I took leave from my residency. And for the first time, I wasn't in school or working. So after the invasion happened, I took the opportunity to go visit my relatives in Iraq. And that first trip in 2004 was inspired by the example of Rachel Corey, who in 2003 had been a 23-year-old college student from Olympia, Washington, who had traveled to occupied Palestine with the International Solidarity Movement. Um, and what those volunteers with the International Solidarity Movement do is they practice civil disobedience in defense of international law. And Rachel was actually killed uh, when she was practicing civil disobedience, standing in front of a bulldozer to prevent a home demolition. And uh, her, um, her literally standing up for justice, standing up for what she believed in, while I was, you know, sitting in the comforts of my own home in the U.S., really, really struck me. And so she inspired me to take my first trip to Iraq, which uh, connected me with family, many of whom I, I hadn't remembered. We lived in Iraq when I was little. But I met a lot of cousins who were born after we left in 1977, when I was five years old. And I just saw this whole, it was like instant family and uh, instant purpose. I really did not look back to medicine at that point. I wanted to do something to try to do something for my relatives um, specifically. But but the, the larger picture of Iraq and still Palestine is on my mind as well. So... That's how my activism started. I really just started putting, they were probably extremely boring, like vacation slideshows of just showing family pictures just to show that there were human beings on the other side of our weapons and that these were real people who were paying a price for what our government was doing. And I gave my first talk in 2004. Over time, uh, with just by word of mouth, that I got invited to do more and more talks. And uh, at the end of 2005, I took my second trip to Iraq when I stayed for three months, um, and I came home in March of 2006. The next month, uh, I was very fortunate to get a slot testifying at a congressional forum on Iraq, and I had my five minutes, and uh, it's actually it's on the Internet. So I, I, gave, I gave it what I had to try to, for five minutes, let people know what the suffering was and to call for immediate unconditional withdrawal. And when that video was posted online, then I started to get more national recognition uh, invitations, and that's really when uh, my activism, my speaking really picked up. Um, it's interesting that you noted uh, the, um, the question, um, and I like the, I like the way you approached it, the question of an anti-war movement, because it seems that um, my speaking was really quite, I was quite busy with that uh, from 2006 to 2008, all the way until the election. And there was a sense that once the election, when Obama was elected, when, once that took place, that he was going to come in as kind of a messiah 
that was going to fix everything. Um, but in reality, he had only promised to expand uh, the war in Afghanistan, which he did by sending 30,000 more soldiers as soon as he was in office. Uh, the formal withdrawal from Iraq didn't actually happen until 2011. Um, but then, of course, the, there were um, thousands who remained on the ground in, you know, in support, as they mentioned in the media. Um, but it, it seemed to show that a big portion of the anti-war movement was really more anti-Republican um, and, uh, and somehow was connected to the Democratic Party. So that was a big loss. But it was at that time that I started to I tried to write more. I've never been... Um, a good writer, and uh, it's taken me a long time to try to work on this book, but I really got to wrap it up now. But I take the opportunities now to speak when I can. Um, still focused on Iraq, uh, which is where uh, my direct family is. But it's really been quite an awakening for me, and um, uh, and I try to recognize and try to keep in mind that this is really not just my yeah I have blood relatives there, but it's not just Iraq. It's it's here in the U.S. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to sound too hokey, but it is the human family that um, that, that we're all in this together, uh, and uh, we have relatives all over the world that our policies, uh, in the name of greed and corruption, are seeking to destroy. So, um, and I was also very fortunate that uh, my activist path crossed with uh, with yours, Vince, and uh, it's a pleasure to still be connected and talking with you today. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, look, I, I don't think any of this is hokey in the least bit because that sense of wanting to be a part of a bigger human family, of, of perceiving ourselves within a bigger human family is, is really what led me to where I'm at today. And those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of reflections were the sort of thoughts and reflections when I was in Iraq that led me to completely uh, sort of disown and reject uh, the military culture what I was doing in the military and so on. So I don't find any of that to be hokey, but what, you know, what's amazing when you're telling your story again, because I've heard you tell it before, but, and it's, what's so amazing to me is thinking about, so I'm thinking about you as a child within the context of your family and what's happening and the conversations, literally the conversations that were taking place around your kitchen table as a child were, a reflection of some of the most important debates and conversations that will have had helped shape the world of the last 50 years. And I, I just find that amazing. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that you've sort of recognized your place within that, but I, I just want to say that again, after you tell your story, I mean, I, I hope you really sort of recognize that because I, I find it to be absolutely fascinating and not, uh, oh, thank you. You know, not. I mean, this is so happening much. even today, Dolly. I mean, I have friends. So I have a friend who lives on the south side of Chicago who is, you know, in between uh, black identity, Latino identity. He has uh, white people in his family. It, the conversations that are taking place within his family, within that sort of multicultural context is truly a reflection of the most important conversations we're having domestically here today. And, you know, yeah. part of what I was thinking about as you were speaking is, you know, this history of U.S. and Western relation to, say, Iraq, specifically, we're talking about here today. This didn't start in 2003. So for someone like myself, let's say people who are younger than I am, I'm 32 years old. And my first 
sort of memory or even hearing the word Iraq was the Gulf War. I was Mm -hmm. seven years old at that time. And it was the first exposure I had to not really, you know, I can't say I was exposed to the people of Iraq, but that was the first time I ever even heard the word Iraq. Seven Mm -hmm. years old, plastered across the TV screen, sort of the first installment of shock and awe, Schwarzkopf with his military gear on and all these graphics. And I remember it as a child, but that was all I knew as a child. We never spoke about the people of Iraq as though they were people. We never heard from Iraqi people. So can you talk a little bit about this sort of a lack of Iraqi voices, not only in the mainstream press, but also within political movements? But can you also touch on the sort of broader history of U.S.-Iraqi relations that this didn't start in 2003? And in fact, it's a decades-long legacy of occupation and meddling and so on. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, it's no wonder that uh, that it was that the Iraqi people were so dehumanized because that was absolutely the agenda that was carried out in the media. Um, it, it was purposefully, and, and as someone whose father was from Iraq, who, you know, grew up in Dover, Delaware, where people like, you know, didn't even, it's, it's, it's a small town. Uh, it's grown since then, but small town, like just no concept of foreign countries in general. Um, right. But uh, overnight, August 2nd, 1990, um, I, sorry, uh, yeah, 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 August 2nd, 1990, people, you know, I went from absolute obscurity to everybody looking at, like, you know, at, like, now this is the, as it was sold to us, the butcher of Baghdad and the, the greatest threat since Hitler, um, without any discussion that we had been arming that regime um, during the 1980s, um, and the and the history between the U.S. government and the Iraqi government and how Saddam Hussein came to power with CIA help in the 1960s. But um, it was absolutely uh, a very controlled media environment, uh, and there was there were public relations firms involved in demonizing Iraqis. Uh, there was a very famous uh, um, the Helen Knowlton. PR firm was involved in manufacturing the story of the Iraqi babies, excuse me, the Iraqi soldiers who threw Kuwaiti babies out of incubators. Um, and this was, this was so horrific, and the, the government needed a, a horrific story to garner public support for a war, um, the last big war the U.S. had had. Um, it seems so commonplace today, but the last big war had been Vietnam, and people were not ready to uh, to send troops overseas again. But this story was so horrific, and it was really it garnered support and and pushed people to say, okay, well, we really this is we have to do something, and that was shown to be a lie afterwards. Um, but uh, I, you know, the the crazy thing about Iraq being defined by Saddam Hussein was the amount of um, the amount that Iraqis despised him at that point in time. I mean, he had come to power brutally. Uh, he was feared. There's no question about that. There was extensive political repression uh, in Iraq under his rule. Um, so that was the that was the atmosphere that Iraqis had lived through, and they they'd also just experienced an eight year war with Iran that caused uh, almost a million casualties on uh, combined both sides. 
Um, they were really, this was, the Iraqis were exhausted and not happy with their leader, but now their leader was being used to represent all of them. And this was really, it, it was, what was absent from the story was what Iraq was, that Iraq was uh, the land of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, the Fertile Crescent, uh, called the Cradle of Civilization, um, the long history of contributions to uh, science, law, and medicine, um, and, uh, and how far the, the society had advanced, um, really, by nationalizing its oil and was able to invest uh, in its own infrastructure, a very strong education system, very strong healthcare system, um, so that there was no question of the political repression, but, um, but you had free healthcare, you had free education, um, you had security, safety uh, in the streets. It was, uh, it was a modernized society. Um, and through the first Gulf War, with the bombing campaigns uh, that were led by the U.S. and, the, and Great Britain um, and the coalition, uh, that really set Iraq back to the Stone Age by attacking water sewage treatment plants and electrical grids um, and com- just completely devastating the infra- infrastructure of the country. So that, and that continued during the years of sanctions that followed after 91, which prevented adequate reconstruction. So, and the country was starved by those years of economic sanctions. So by the time 2003 came about, um, the notion that Iraq posed a threat to anybody uh, was, uh, was a joke. Um, and, uh, and there had been weapons inspections. Iraq had been disarmed. Um, and that was Scott Ritter had testified to the adequacy of his work, that Iraq posed no threat. But then here we were once again to, um, to invade and attack. And, uh, again, we had uh, excellent... Uh, media campaigns uh, with Colin Powell, with his little vial of anthrax at the UN. All of this proven to be um, lies since then, that many of us thought they were lies, and and they've since been proven to have been lies, that really all the way along it was about the oil. It was about who would control Iraq's oil, who, who would make the profits from it, and who the oil would be sold to. And it was about Israeli national security. Um, Iraq's regime uh, was one of the strongest in the region in opposition to the illegal occupation of Palestine. So again, the issue of Palestine is at the root uh, of the problem um, and many of the conflicts in that region. Um, and with the regime gone, now that, that uh, opposition was neutralized. Um, and all the way through, uh, even even as it is, we can see it here at home when you know the the impact of of policies with with our own infrastructure falling apart, or when natural disasters hit like Hurricane Katrina, who is paying the price? The very poor, the very weak, which are usually the very young and very old, or the sick. These are the people who pay the highest price, and it's the same thing in this country. It's the same thing in Iraq where, you know, money anywhere will, will buy you a way out, will, will give you privilege. Um, but it's the, the weakest segments of society who suffer the most. And when there's violence, the segments, who suffer, segments of the population who suffer the most are women and children. So that's something to keep in mind as we're hearing the, um, 
the support and, and mobilization uh, uh, to garner more support for moving troops into Syria um, is to consider that 90 percent of the casualties of war are unarmed civilians. So that really, that's the choice we're making. We, we, have, a, we have a lofty and noble goal in mind that, that our government is trying to sell us. But the bottom line is that we're killing innocent people. And that's what we have to be aware of, which, of course, our government doesn't want us to know. But that's what we have to recognize is the choice we're making every time uh, we, we launch a missile um, or, or send troops overseas uh, into combat. So I ended up way off from the original question. So let me stop right there and let you jump back in here. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. You know, the first thing that comes to my head is thinking uh, how much of this history is lacking from our conversation and how different Americans would perceive current situation if they actually understood some of this history. So maybe to no fault of their own, maybe there is some fault that, that you know, that they should most Americans that I speak with or people that I've spoken to. And then this, this, I should be more nuanced too, because it depends who you're speaking to. So throughout the years Mm -hmm. after I came back from Iraq and spoke out about my time being, uh, as, as a Marine in Iraq, you know, I would get a much different response depending on who the community was. So if I was speaking Mm -hmm. to a bunch of sort of middle-class white people in suburban America, the response was much different than if I was giving a talk in Gary, Indiana, which is 90% black, uh, many of whom very poor people uh, economically. And the same if I'm on, say, the west side of Chicago speaking to a Latino crowd, uh, people who are first or second generation immigrants from Ecuador, El Salvador, uh, all over the place. Uh, Much different response. Um, So I shouldn't say Americans and use that term so broadly. But what I should say is that or what I should ask you is, do you think that some of the indifference is because of this lack of information? So people don't understand any really any of Iraq's history prior to 2003 and the limited history they do know post 2003 is sort of it's colored by not only the U.S. media, Western propaganda and culture and so on, but also you know, what people are hearing today, you know, that, oh, it's just, it was a brutal society. These are people who have always been fighting each other. Uh, a lot of this is boiled down to religious sectarian conflict instead of, instead of taking like a broader geopolitical socioeconomic uh, view of the situation. Um, what is that legacy post 2003 and how much of this indifference towards what's happening uh, do you think is, uh, inherent to the American sort of culture, the American character, and how much of this do you think is just a lack of information? People simply don't know what it is you're telling me right now. Um, I, I, that's a huge, huge part of it. Um, and I think, part, you know, there's, there's a number of factors that feed into that. One is that geographically, <clears throat> we're so isolated from much of the world, except for Canada and Mexico, the, um, who, who we border. And we kind of are the, I mean, we're, we're a bully. We, we act as a bully in the world, but we kind of own North America. Um, we don't really have a concept of really needing to get along with people. And there's sort of a mentality of, you know, people are trying to come here and take what's ours, which, which this, has to be, this has to be developed over years. And it, it starts in our education system. Uh, like we don't learn about, I don't remember learning about, of course it has been a long time, but I don't remember learning about 
you know, the cradle of civilization. And I was, uh, except for kindergarten, where, which is kind of funny because I, I did go to kindergarten in Iraq, but I refused to learn Arabic. And, and I regret that to this day. But so I wasn't paying attention to the studies there anyway. But all my education is here in the U.S. And it's very, it's, it's geared for a particular agenda. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure my, that same education that I had used the word savages in describing attacks on settlers in this country. Um, so right. there's, it, it brain, the brainwashing starts very early. Um, and, uh, and then you get to a point where, you know, maybe you come out of school and you, uh, you get a job. If you, if you can go on to college, fantastic, or maybe right out of high school, you have to get a job. With the state of our economy here today and the growing gap between um, the wealthy and, uh, and the underprivileged and a lack of a living wage, uh, people are working uh, two, maybe three jobs to make ends meet. Uh, they don't have time. Maybe they have time for a little bit of family time in the evening, but they've got to, it's basic survival. I mean, not, not to the point of, you know, famine that we see in other parts of the world, but it's a daily struggle for survival. And a lot of families are one or two paychecks away from being homeless. So they don't have time. There's just no time or energy to, to dig deeper um, you know, to get, we have the access to information on the internet today, but nobody has time for that. They only have time for the sound bites that are coming through on the news. And those are very carefully selected, um, to keep us ignorant. Uh, and those we now have, we're now at a point where five corporations, uh, five major corporations own the media of this country. So, and those, those corporations have links both to um, group uh, companies like weapons manufacturers, they have ties to government. So here's where the military-industrial complex comes in, um, influencing uh, uh, government, influ- influencing our, our knowledge or lack thereof on what's happening. Um, but it's very interesting, the point you made, is that people who have experienced racism or poverty or suffering can receive the information of another people's suffering because they're familiar with it. Um, and that when we, when, we, when we have messages that come at us that are intended to drive us apart and there's no, there's no foundation for recognizing what we have in common, it's no wonder that people don't want to hear about it, don't have the time. We've pretty much forgotten all of history before September 11th, 2001. That's been my experience in, in my speaking over the years. Not a lot of people think back to the first Gulf War when that was so impactful on my life. Um, I was a sophomore in college at the time. Um, even though you were only seven years old, um, that I can't, <laughs> that's hard for me to fathom, <laughs> but it definitely impacted my life and, uh, and the life of my family. And, uh, and I will tell you every, every six months, it's a very clear memory is that every six months, I just remember this um, increased anxiety for my father because the sanctions would come under review of the UN Security Council. And my dad was the only one outside of Iraq. He was sending money back home so my relatives could eat. And it was just this big hope that every six months, just waiting for the news, praying for lifting of the sanctions, and it just never came. Um, so, so it's, you know, and, and this, is, this is the unique 
position that I'm in because of my family background. And for, for a long time in my life, I, you know, I was focused on my own thing and my own, uh, my own ego, if you will, and my own personal accomplishments. And, and, and if I'm going to do that and I have a direct connection to that part of the world, then how can I expect anybody else to pay attention? And that was really, that was part of my big crisis of conscience of, you know, what am I doing with my life? And, you know, it really got to a point where um, I couldn't live with the hypocrisy of my own life. And it was either something radical has to change or my life is not, not worth this anymore. So um, all of that drama, um, I will leave your, your audience hanging. That'll be, that'll be in my book. And it's really, my book is a memoir, um, but I try to inject in this history that's that's so absent um, from our, our current dialogue to at least, then you really see, I think, I basically ask people to, to look at what's happening overseas through my eyes, and then it's a much different view than just the, the few screenshots that you see. Um, and uh, if hopefully, it, that's my hope anyway, that uh, you get to know uh, some of my family and what they went through and endured over the years, and to just make you bring a little different, something different to mind when you hear on television that, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go get the bad guys. Um, we've launched missiles. Um, we're hitting ISIS when, when in reality, ISIS is controlling neighborhoods where people live, where there are families. And, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of death and destruction that we're not hearing about, but is unfortunately continues to take place with, uh, um, with, with our tax dollars. Yeah, well, this brings me to my next question, which was going to be, how do we discuss, how would you recommend that people of good conscience discuss what's happening in Iraq today? So, for instance, I'm hearing a lot of the same, and we can maybe even add Syria to the mix, but I don't want to convolute what we're talking about too much, although I think there's probably no way to talk about this in a separate way. Anyway, all right, that being right. said, I heard this in 2012 in 2011 in Libya. I'm hearing this again in Syria. And now again in 2016, I'm hearing this about Iraq. And that is decent folks. These aren't like the, here's, well, two, two sides. Number one, I'm getting sort of this humanitarian interventionist sort of ideology dialogue that I'm getting from one side. And these are, these are from people who I wouldn't consider to be rabid racists or, uh, people who uh, look down on others. I think it's just this like, it's this urge, I think, among people who have decent values that they want to do something, they see what's happening. They're probably buying a little bit too much into this propaganda, thinking that the United States military can do positive things overseas. I'm hearing this also, uh, a, a different narrative from the right wing. So if you listen to Trump supporters or if you listen to Trump, what's really interesting is he constantly talks about how the war in Iraq was a mistake, but he follows it up by saying we should have went there, made the place glow, referencing possibly using nuclear weapons, sort of kill these savages, take their oil and just leave that place and let them kill each other. That's the narrative from the right wing. So what's interesting to me now is we have Trump supporters who are maybe less inclined to hear this, hey, let's go back in, let's send troops, let's send special forces, let's engage with drones, and so on. But I'm hearing that more from sort of the mainstream liberals who would maybe fall under like the Hillary Clinton camp. So I, 
this is a lot, but my question, I guess, would be how do we talk about what's happening today and within the context of ISIS and so on? Like, what, what is it that you're seeing, especially since 2014, when I think a lot of people became aware uh, of maybe a little bit more aware of what was happening in Iraq? They were hearing things in the news. They were seeing ISIS plastered all over the 10 o'clock news and so on. How do how do how do you interpret all of these things? How do you, how are you navigating what's happening right now? Yeah, it's it's hugely challenging um, because because it's it's sort of being used as you know we we invaded Iraq in two thousand three. Um, we've been we've been characterizing uh, since since the um, September eleventh two thousand one. Islam has been characterized as. Uh, a religion of terror. There's uh, Islamophobia. There's all this, um, uh, uh, the the terrorist threat of Muslims. This is how it's being framed and identified, and and this is <laughs> this came in. Now we're 15 years later, and you have ISIS, and now people are like, see. We told you they're extremists. <laughs> it's kind right. of skipping over right. the whole part where we created the extremists. Um, we, we sort of like not paying attention to, to our role in things. Um, and it, you know, it ties into to what you asked previously about, um, you know, how to, what, why, why don't people understand or how do we, how do people get informed on what's happening? When, when we hear about uh, Palestine in the news, it's not as bad as it was before, but there's been a tendency to characterize Palestinians as terrorists yep. and Israelis as victims, um, which is the reverse of, of how the, um, how it's, it's, an, it's not two equal sides and it's not the aggressor um, is, uh, is the Zionist. Uh, who established the state of Israel and continue to try to expand its borders today, and the occupied, the victims, are the Palestinians. But there's been such a systematic uh, and consistent approach to label Arabs and or Muslims as terrorists, and this has been going on for uh, decades. Um, it's, well, it's well described in a book by Dr. Jack Shaheen called um, The Real Arab, uh, which is... Uh, Showing how um, the caricatures of and the negative stereotyping of Arabs in the media—it's the same thing that's happened to uh, whatever minority or group uh, that uh, that the powers that be have wanted to demonize, whether it's Latinos or African Americans or Jews uh, or Asians. There has been a calculated approach in Hollywood um, to reinforce those images. So now, fully bypassing the, the 15 years where we devastated a society, we installed uh, a government that was very conservative and was using extreme brutality and violence against the people. This was the Iraqi government we helped bring to power in 2005. And the response to that was, uh, was another set of extremists. And, and what's missing from the picture, which really takes a long time to digest is that currently we are arming both sides. We are arming the Iraqi government in its battle against ISIS, in the official battle against ISIS. And we also continue to pour weapons and money into the so-called moderate rebels in Syria. And first of all, they're, they're not moderate. Um, they're basically the, the 
at least some of the arms and monies are going into the hands of, uh, of al-Qaeda in Syria, and they're getting into the hands of ISIS. And this is actually, you know, then, see, then people, then it's that it gets to so far, so far from the mainstream narrative that then it's difficult. I, I tend to lose people when I start saying that we're arming both sides. Um, but but on, a, on a very basic level, when someone comes to you saying, we need to launch this war or we need to launch these airstrikes for humanitarian purposes, stop. Stop and process what that means. Um, because as I said earlier, this is, these are figures um, from both UNICEF and recently, I think it's the American Public Health Association in 2014, that says that 90% of the casualties of war are unarmed civilians and that there are more children who are maimed or killed today in warfare than soldiers. So we have to think about, we have to be open to, or I hope that we are open to what the reality is of what we're doing versus what we wish it would be. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's what I think is going to ultimately it's going to be our greatest asset is that people generally want to help. They generally want to do right and to help people. But the problem is they're being sold lies on TV as to what is actually helping. So, but when someone comes to you saying we need to launch this humanitarian war, there is absolutely nothing humanitarian about 90% of your victims being innocent people. On another aspect of that, rape, has been a weapon of war for centuries. There is no such thing as a humanitarian rape, so don't let anybody sell you on a humanitarian war. War, which you could testify, I've only read about it, um, you saw it firsthand, but I would call war an endless series of atrocities, and there is nothing that can ever be referred to as humanitarian regarding that. This is just the nature of modern warfare. It's, not, it's no longer a situation which... Had I been there at the time, I would have disagreed with as well. But no, no longer a situation with two armies coming together in a field and seeing who's left standing. Um, it's just not not with the way not with the way our weapons are today, not with the technology. Um, and this has brought more suffering to more people around the world. So, when you want to help, cruise missiles won't do it. Depleted uranium won't do it. Napalm is not going to do it. That's not the answer. Um, we have to do. That's easy. That's very easy. Um, but, uh, but and, and again, with less than 1% of the U.S. population serving in the military, most people are disconnected from it. So it, it's even easy to say, okay, fine, send boots on the ground. You know, I don't want to do it, but it's not my kid. Um, That's right. So, so that, that, that personal connection um, is, is so lacking amongst so many people, but that there is no, you know, we have... When we're making life and death decisions, we have an obligation to be educated about it. So if you don't have, um, a, and the internet, if you do have five or 10 minutes, it's, a, it's an outstanding resource. Go look up some of the, um, I mean, you'll hear on mainstream uh, promotion for warfare, but on the internet, there's certainly um, a number of groups that I, you know, I know you're active with. There's Veterans for Peace, Iraq Veterans Against the War, um, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Um, these groups that have emerged in response, oh, there's Veterans for Peace in the U.K., so it's not just, you know, it's not just a U.S. Um, phenomenon. Um, but 
but there's so many and this is the this is the the biggest thing is that of everyone in this country you know we're all getting lied to but there's certain people who who pay the highest price for that and you know once you're overseas it's you know it it tends to be too late um, because I don't say that the Pentagon used to say one in three come home with post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't, I don't see how that's possible. I, everybody who goes over there um, has to be changed in some way, unless I guess you're sitting in, unless you're working for a general and you're pushing papers. I don't know. That's right. neither here nor there, but um, there is no one who, who, is, who is unaffected from it. Um, but that's the, that's the bottom line is when we want to go in and help, you know, why don't we, we could send in doctors. Um, we could, if you just look at what happened in, um, in Haiti after the hurricane, we sent in the U S military and contractors while Cuba and Venezuela sent in doctors. Um, there's a, it's a difference in approach that, um, can either, uh, really, really bring in, um, something humanitarian or really just work under the guise of humanitarianism to expand business and uh, expand control of, of other places. So they're big questions to ask, but, um, but because it's, they are literally life and death questions, you know, that's, that's what we, we need to be asking. Well, and two points or two responses to what you had said. And one thing is a question I've been wanting to ask you, but the, the thing that I'd try and remind Americans and to your point that this fallout from foreign occupation and devastation, bombs, drones, so on, is not the response and the subsequent context that has arose because of this has very little to do with the so-called Iraqi character or with Islam as such. But, you know, mm-hmm. what I try and remind my friends in this country is let's not bullshit ourselves here. If, if a foreign government destroyed this country, funded different organizations, let's say funding rogue police officers, but then funding militant activists. Um, I I can't imagine anyone who would think that the same thing wouldn't happen in the United States with 330 million people in one of the most racially segregated and economically unequal countries in the world with over 300 million weapons on the streets. Uh, anyone in the United States who thinks that if a foreign occupying force blew apart our infrastructure and our society, that the same exact thing wouldn't happen here is completely full of shit. So, th- And I think that if we approach things in a very matter-of-fact way, I think you know I've gotten just people who are average Americans, people I grew up with, people who don't call themselves activists and so on, like they get that when I talk to them in such a way. You know, they, they kind of understand, like, once you say, hey, look, what would you do? What do you think if you were in this position? So the, the first part is to humanize the other because of the way that things are framed in this country. But then the other part of this, at least in my thinking, is to get the average American to put themselves in the shoes of, say, Palestinians or Iraqis. And that, to me, is, is, is been probably the most effective way, at least verbally, uh, that I've had in communicating with people, workers, yeah, average Americans, and so on. Such a good idea. And the second thing I really wanted to ask you about is because ISIS has been talked about so much, and I've heard from other people, look, there's elements of ISIS that are people who are foreign fighters. There's elements that are uh, Iraqis 
who haven't left domestically. How do you, are there books, are there recommendations you would have for people of good conscience in the United States who are hoping to better understand what's happening in Iraq and maybe even more specifically with uh, ISIS? Oh, boy, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I have to say I I am not familiar. There's a few, um, there's a few books I've seen out uh, by, you know, being on the Counterpunch website. I know, I think it's Patrick Coburn who has a a book talking about the emergence of ISIS, but I I haven't read it, so I I can't vouch for it. There are new books that have come out since 2014 when ISIS came on the scene. Um, This is is terrible because I'm totally going to plug myself and an article I wrote, um, but there's a for my description of, of, of cause and effect of, of how, where, where this extremist group came from, I wrote an article uh, actually about a year ago. It came out June 2015, and it's called um, Iran-Iraq War Redux, uh, Battling ISIS. And I talk about there how this is, a, it's an issue of, of arming both sides, but also how ISIS emerged out of, the U.S. occupation and the resistance to it. And um, I prefer shorter pieces rather than books just because I'm, I'm a really slow reader. But I would be happy to send you the link if you wanted to share it on your site. Um, I'm actually, I haven't, I, I, I got to be honest, I haven't done a lot of uh, research on ISIS in the last year or so. Um, it's just it's my own. I think part of it is my own. Like I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with this anymore, um, right. and so my own personal um, frustration with the situation. Um, but and that's that's a shame because. But then I can put myself in the shoes of people who are like, you know, uh, really another group, um, you know, and uh, and that's very effectively sold to us is how you know they they too are coming to kill us, um, which is not. Is, is not the case. Uh, we are we are not under threat, um, at not the imminent threat that uh, the politicians would have us believe. Um, but yeah, that's the best I can do to suggest on um, on ISIS. Uh, and I apologize for that. That's uh, I think that's my own um, my own uh, frustration and uh, and limitation with with the circumstances there. No, 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 no apologies needed. The, you know, the other question, I think this is probably the uh, question you um, have put a lot of thought into, and that is, obviously, we need a new anti-war movement. And obviously, this movement, in my thinking, should showcase the voices of Palestinians, Iraqis, Syrians. Why do you think it is that uh, people such as Palestinians or Iraqis haven't had such a voice in previous anti-war movements, and how can we better create movements to create uh, places, positions, opportunities, platforms for people such as yourself and others uh, who have a more intimate experience uh, with these events and conflicts? That's a great question. Um, and yeah, I and, actually, and I'm sorry, but we only have a couple minutes left. So. Oh, <laughs> so if you could, okay. if you could well, but no, I, I really a... wanted to ask you that. 
Yeah, well, I was uh, I was talking on end, but um, here's where I would say, um, you know, traditionally the established anti-war movement in the country, which I'm familiar with it from the Vietnam era and then the um, aftershock and awe. I, I mean, it's traditionally, and this is not a judgment necessarily. It's just a, the it's just a, a fact that it's been a predominantly white movement. Um, and there are certain, you know, we have certain dynamics in this country that um, that we have to work with. So it's not as with any. Uh, minority, it's it's a little bit more difficult to have access. Although I, you know, I I, uh, I can't complain. I've um, I've opened my mouth and I've I've had people listen and and I've had I've had great opportunities. I think that one approach to take, uh, which has been absolutely beautiful, is we have now what I think are very um, very strong, very coherent, um, uh, powerful movements that are uh, minority-driven, and you mentioned them in the introduction. One is Black Lives Matter and all the other um, uh, groups that have emerged uh, uh, following the um, well-publicized killings of young black men by police. And there's what's happening at Standing Rock. These are um, black-led and indigenous-led movements, and I think it's our responsibility, those of us who are outside those groups, to stand behind them. The, tendence, the tendency is, I think, for those organizations, and certainly powerful people want to co-opt those groups, but I think it's our responsibility to join them because those are the people, they are on the front lines, um, whether, whether it's the militarized police or the police and military in Standing Rock. Those are the people who are literally, that's their they're unarmed, but fighting a war, uh, and they, they're in a tremendous position, um, and I see myself as I want to be their ally and let them tell me what to do, um, and I can come with my position and my politics and draw the connections that I can, but they are in the lead. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Dr. Dalia Waspi. Thanks for being on Meditations in Molotovs. It's a pleasure to speak with you. You're always spot on, and it's, it's a great honor, so thank you. Oh, it's great for me. Thank you so much. All right, we'll talk to everyone next week. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Go, go, go. Go, go.